Cities produce more than 60% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Big cities get a lot of attention, but most household emissions in the U.S. actually come from communities outside urban cores, making them critical players in climate mitigation and climate justice. City Climate Corner explores how these small and mid-sized cities are tackling climate change and moving toward an equitable and sustainable future. I'm Abby Finnis. And I'm Larry Kraft. We're co-hosts for City Climate Corner. Hey, Abby. Hey, Larry. So you've been heading up to the North Shore of Lake Superior a lot lately through Duluth, haven't you? I have been And why that. is that? Well, I think we've mentioned before that I've been building a cabin up there. And we have made, we had a couple setbacks, but we've made a lot of progress to the point where we've got it ready for winter, at least. We got the roof done, wood stove installed. And I, I want to say, when you say you're building, some people say, hey, I'm building a house, I'm building this. <laughs> and that means they're hiring a firm or someone to mm. do it. But when you say you're building it, you're actually building it. Correct. Right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So. I've been seeing these social media pictures of all the things going on the roof. And I don't even know the right terms because I'm so unhandy. But like, yeah. really impressive. Yeah. Thank you. And I am not you know, a handy person and <laughs> never really would have thought, you know, that I, I believe that. <laughs> could build something. But yeah, we have constructed the whole thing and it's not a super complex design. To me, the roof is the hardest part and the area that I'd have the least experience with, you know, getting the floor done and framing out the walls and stuff. That's all pretty fun and something that I feel like I can do. But yeah, the roof, man. We have the most amazing friends who come in at key moments and <laughs> help get things right. And so we've just been super fortunate to have people come up and help. And then you get the engineers who come in and they're like, oh, I don't think your roof is strong enough for the snow. <laughs> when someone tells you that, it seems like they know what they're talking about, that they don't yeah, think your roof is strong enough. Yeah, four out of five of your engineering friends tell you that and... But then they're like, hey, we're going to help you fix it. And so wow. they did. So See, yeah. I mean, when you say I'm really not handy, and then you talk about how the floors and the walls were fun and all that. <laughs> that is literally, it's not, it's like, it seems complicated, but it's just nailing some sticks together. It's not. <laughs> I think yeah. I mean, it can be a lot more complicated than we did it. And I don't want to undermine builders or anything because they would do it a lot faster. It'd probably be a little bit more square. Um <laughs> But I'm impressed. I am. It's way better than anything I thought that we'd be able to build. So yeah, yeah, it looks it looks really awesome. So congratulations yeah. on that. Thank you. I was gonna say, imagine your friends had to drive through Duluth to get up there too, right? Everybody had to drive through Duluth. There's only one way up there through Duluth. <laughs> Why do I keep on bringing up Duluth? <laughs> well, because Duluth is our feature city today. Duluth is an incredible city, right on the beginning of the North Shore of. Lake Superior, uh, Minnesota side. And it's just a really incredible place, a gem of Minnesota. And they face a lot of pretty extreme weather in Duluth. So it's a good case study in looking at what cold climate solutions can be for climate change. Yeah. And they're doing some really great stuff. I'm excited to listen to this. Yeah. Let's give it a listen. Let's do it. Today, we are joined by Mindy Granley, Sustainability Officer, Brett Cresselius, Community Resilience Project Coordinator, and Ella Stewart, a service member with AmeriCorps, all with the fabulous city of Duluth, Minnesota. 
Welcome to City Climate Corner, all of you. Let's start with each of you introducing yourselves. Mindy, why don't you go first? Sure. Hi, Larry. I'm Mindy Granley. I've been the sustainability officer for this city for three and a half years. I was the first person to take this position, and it's been a really exciting one. We've come a long way in the last three and a half years from a city that had some climate goals but needed to put those in an organized approach and gain feedback and alignment. So, yeah, we're basically putting the climate goals that the city leaders have had into action. So that's my main job. Fantastic. Brett. Yeah, thanks, Larry. I'm Brett Kosilius, Community Resilience Project Coordinator. My focus is community resilience and integrating solar, PV, and storage into our communities in order to create more resilient communities and to meet our community needs. Fantastic. And Ella. Hi, I am Ella. I'm the Energy and Sustainability Vista here with the city, and I just graduated from University of Minnesota Duluth. And I was an intern, and now I joined as a service member, and it's been really great so far. Fantastic. So, Mindy, could you give us a little background on the city of Duluth and what it's like to live there? Sure. Well, I think there's a few words that pop up in everybody's mind when they hear Duluth, and it's that we have a lot of water. That's the first thing. We're right on Lake Superior, but beyond the Lake Superior shoreline, which has its own coastal sort of environment, microclimate, and issues that come with being a coastal community. We also have so many miles of the St. Louis River, too. And then along the city of Duluth, which is really quite a long city, we're 27 miles long, we also have dozens of little streams that drain the hillside. So it's a pretty unique geography. We have all this water, the lake, the river, all these streams, 17 of which are actually named trout streams within the city limits, which is pretty cool, pretty unique. So we're cold. You probably hear about Duluth getting a lot of snow. Last year, we broke the record year of snowfall ever on record. So that was exciting. I think everyone in town got to a point where they were like, well, if it's going to snow this much, we might as well break the record. So there was there was a lot of celebrating when we did. So yeah, we have a lot of challenges in just basically how to run a city and have our infrastructure with all of this water. And then with climate change, the amount of rain and snow that we're getting is predicted to increase. And then also storms are predicted to be more extreme. So you already had like a city that's kind of challenging to manage and take care of all this infrastructure. And then you put climate change on top of that. It presents a lot of challenges for us, for our housing and our buildings to be energy efficient, for our stormwater runoff to be managed in a way that doesn't induce flooding or damage property. Yeah. So we've got our challenges. We're cold. We're wet. Um, we're big. We're 80 square miles. You're really you know, selling it a, here, Mindy. I know. It's a really big city. It's a challenge to take care of everything that we need to do. We have old housing stock, old building stock that needs renewal. And But I also think there's a lot of opportunity to solve those problems and do them in the right way. And I remember one of the first times I came to Duluth. I mean, anyone who thinks Minnesota isn't hilly should go to Duluth. Because it's gorgeous there, but with the hills and the bluffs overlooking the lake is phenomenal. Hey, about how large is Duluth from a population perspective? I think the last census was 86,000, somewhere around there. We used to be a city of over 100,000, but in the 80s, kind of population dwindled. And so we probably have enough infrastructure to support more residents. But right now we're sticking around 86,000. Minna, you mentioned your role is really rooted in implementing the city's climate goals. Can you give us a little bit of history on how those goals were established and what they are? Sure. We have had a lot of support throughout the years for sustainability. I know Ella, our VISTA 
service member was making a timeline for us and it's on our website if anybody's interested, but we have like an actual timeline of like all the different climate related resolutions and things that have been passed to say we should work on climate change, we should work on sustainability. So that's been going on for years. We had mayors that had made goals, but I think it was really Mayor Emily Larson that declared, nope, we're going to stay in this Paris climate agreement when the United States was pulling out and she signed it. So we're still in and we're going to put these plans into action. We're going to put this goal into action. And so I think it was really Mayor Larson's goal that operationalized our climate aspirations. And so she set a goal to reduce emissions pretty much 10% per mayoral term is how our property facilities management saw it. It was like, okay, so we have four years to reduce emissions 10%. What do we do? That was the first time it was really operationalized. But the goals just were strengthened as the science came out and said, oh, we can't just go to 80% by 2050. We have to actually do this faster and a little bit farther. So the mayor has also declared that we're going to be 100% carbon neutral by 2050, not just 80%. So those have been, I think, really the impetus for putting this into action. But we also, in 2020, had our city council declare climate change an emergency and something that we should operationalize as well and report back on. So in addition to strong mayoral goals, we also had that city council resolution. And that resolution said not only... Will you operationalize these climate goals, put it into action within every city department, then bring us back a report every year and come back and tell us how you're doing every year. So I think that operationalized it even further. And now it's sort of just embedded in what we do. I think we have alignment and agreement across all of the departments that, yep, this is part of our work. We all have a role in it. And so it just helps us move it forward. And part of that resolution was in operationalizing climate action really was to do a climate action plan that is focused on primarily city operations. Can you talk about how that supports this cross-departmental implementation of climate action? Absolutely. Our climate action work plan, we went for sort of a five-year plan. And because a lot of folks were around the table saying, we have a lot of problems to solve. Solving climate change in 20 years, that's like a faraway problem. But the things that we need to do today are really the things we should focus on. I was like, that's great. Phase one is to do the stuff that we need to do and do it better in the next five years. And we keep building upon that. So instead of a, sort of a 20-year plan of like, here's how we're going to get to zero, our plan is really about what are the things we're going to do in the next five years and how do we make sure climate is centered in all those decisions. And so a lot of the early work was really about adopting internal policies for our city buildings and for our city vehicles and fleet to make sure we're getting those policies in place for the long term. But I think the Climate Action Work Plan, when I first mentioned it and everyone was like, well, we have a lot to do and we don't have funding. Like, how do we? And I was like, well, let's put that in the plan, right? Like, how how do we get there? So there's, you know, out of our four objectives, one of them is to find creative funding solutions for climate action. And so we told folks like, we're not going to expect you to do this without resources. We're all going to work together to get resources to get this work done. And I think once we said that, everyone sort of in the room took a deep breath and said, oh, okay, like it's not an unfunded mandate. It's here's what we aspire to do for climate and here's the resources we need. Here's the people that we need. And I think once we allowed everyone to take a deep breath and realize that you don't have to do it without resources or alone, it made it easier to really get that alignment and agreement that we needed. So yeah, that's what I see our climate action work plan is. It's a five-year to-do list that puts climate at the top of everything we do and we all agree on it. Let's find solutions and ways to get there. And in the last year, those solutions just keep popping up faster than (laughs) I can even track them. 
with the state and federal laws and, and incentives being passed for climate action. So, mm-hmm. But I imagine one of those very helpful resources is having an AmeriCorps member on the team. Ella, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on? Yeah, I think my main focus has been the relationship building and the storytelling of our office. So we're building a better relationship with the community and making it more transparent for what we're doing because the community does really care about the climate. We had the Citizen Climate Action Plan first, actually. So it's always been a priority. And I think communicating it effectively is very important. And so that's been kind of my main priorities. I've been getting out in the community, doing surveys and trying to do some educational workshops with the federal incentives. That's been my main focus. How did you wind up coming to work for Duluth? I imagine you were excited with all this great climate work here. Yeah, I'd heard a lot about Mindy at UMD. I'd heard a lot of amazing things about her. And going to school here, I just fell in love. I wanted to live here. I really wanted to make a difference in the community. I just felt so much more connected than where I grew up for some reason. Like I was able to connect so quickly and interning in the office was just, that was it. I was like, I definitely could see myself working here for another year. Great. Well, before we go into a specific project, and Mindy already sort of started teeing this up with some of the unique challenges that Duluth faces with cold climate, geology, geography, but maybe Brett, can you share some of the challenges that you face with those kinds of things in the work you're doing. Yeah, I'd be happy to share with that. I think the biggest thing that she touched base on was our old building stock and our commercial stock in the face of cold climate. I think it's something like 60% of our houses were all built prior to 1940. So the majority of our housing stock is almost a century old, which is significant when it comes to energy efficiency. So I think that's one of the biggest hurdles is realizing we're in climate zone seven and how to make our buildings more resilient for our community is probably the biggest thing that's touched the work that we're on right now, or I'm on right now. Yeah. I'd say we feel some of the same things down here in St. Louis Park, but I think you all have it even more so. So along with buildings, one of the things that generates a lot of energy use emissions there is heating. And so, Mindy, a major challenge, of course, is how to decarbonize the heating system in Duluth. But you have maybe a unique structure in your heating system. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I think, first off, we own a municipal gas utility. So the city owns the gas utility, and that presents opportunities and challenges alike. So I think having 28,000 gas accounts that depend on that resource to keep them warm and unfrozen all winter long is an important responsibility and have a lot of respect for the folks who run that utility and they run it well and we need them at the table to find solutions in the future too. So my hat's off to them first. But we also have another utility, a district energy system, and that has also been an asset for us in turning over the downtown system, which was a hundred and some years old, one way looped steam district and turning that into a closed loop hot water district that is more energy efficient. That's been the challenge of the last decade really in Duluth downtown is how do we flip this system from this ancient thing that's very sort of inefficient open loop system and make it more efficient. So there's been a lot of work done on sort of the downtown thermal district infrastructure to make it more efficient. 
and we can build on that. And once it's an efficient district, then you can look at, you know, substituting other sources of heat. And so we're sort of getting into analysis and design of one way to do that, which is a really fun project, is to look at can we recover waste heat in the effluent from our wastewater treatment plant and use that to heat buildings in a district networked system using geoexchange. So that's a project that we were funded this past spring, and we're just getting started on design of what that system could look like, how many buildings it could heat, what it would cost, and what kind of community benefits can come from it. So that's a pretty exciting one. Yeah, so we've seen this in some other places. I think St. Cloud is doing some things like, not not quite this, but is recovering the heat from the wastewater, which seems like a really exciting area. So do you have a sense of how much it can do for you right now? Are you still in the design phase to try to understand that? Yeah, we're definitely in the design of like, what will it look like? Where will it go? How do we get over a railroad track and an interstate to get the heat from one place to another? So those are definitely big challenges that our engineers are facing. But This isn't a new idea. It's one that community members have brought up and studied. The University of Minnesota Duluth partnered with Equilibrium 3 did a study many years back. And then a German intern came two summers ago and worked with Evergreen Energy and did some more calculations on it. And each time the idea went from, oh, wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be kind of fun? To, oh my gosh, there's a lot of heat there. To, oh my gosh, this could really heat hundreds of buildings. And so as we've gotten more and more information, the reality of it could work has really sunk into all of our minds. And that's why we went big and got the Department of Energy funding for community geothermal heating and cooling to actually design it. Because the back of the envelope calculation was, while we could heat every building in Lincoln Park along West Superior Street and attached to downtown and heat all of the hot water buildings downtown. So that's a lot of heat. (laughs) And the possibility of decarbonizing hundreds of buildings through this one source is pretty amazing and one that we're going to follow up on and make sure we know what it will cost, what it will take, how we can do it. So I think that's one way that Duluth can be innovative is to try something like this. It's so interesting. And there's nothing, uh, I guess I would ask, is there anything unique about your wastewater plant that would say, boy, you can do it on this one, but not on another? Because I've heard a lot of interest with this kind of approach elsewhere. Yeah, I think not necessarily. One of the things through all the iterations of sort of the could this work, how many buildings could it heat kind of thing is we calculated it. We do have some industrial process emissions that are a little warmer that go into our wastewater treatment plant from industry because, you know, Duluth and the surrounding area, we still do have industry and there's waste heat that comes from there. But we had the German intern really run the model with those industrial waste heat inputs and then without. And even without those, there was still a lot of heat and plenty of heat to heat all the buildings. So I don't think it's a unique situation at all. And one of the things we look forward to is like, well, if we could do it, then, you know, maybe every community of the 16,000 water treatment plants in the United States, maybe everyone could do it. So part of the excitement of it. Mm, Sounds like maybe a state policy thing we should be thinking about. We're taking a quick break to say, if you like what you're hearing, please support us via a tax deductible contribution at the support us link on our webpage, cityclimatecorner.com. You can also become a monthly supporter and get a cool gift by going to the Patreon link, which is the P in the social media menu in the top right of that webpage. Thanks. Hey, so how does this interact with the city-owned gas delivery? Are they on board with this? Is it integrated or is it separate? Because they're also providing heating too. Yeah, in fact, our thermal district downtown is about 
99% heated with natural gas. So of course those utilities work together and they're intertwined. I think there's solutions that we will need gas for for a long time. And then there are opportunities to use district energy to decarbonize that it will take a long time to convert and build that infrastructure. But both of them are assets and we have to do our best to work together. I think the long-term plan of, you know, if we start taking away uses of natural gas, what happens to that gas utility and their business model? I mean, that's a risk, right, that we're going to have to plan for and look into. But we're just at the beginning of that journey. Right now, they're a really important partner in keeping people warm and safe all winter, and we don't want to jeopardize that. But yeah, there's definitely some planning. Um, In fact, I just last Friday submitted an energy futures grant. Hopefully, we can get some capacity dollars to put somebody on that just have a person for two years, three years, really work on planning. What is our energy transition plan? You know, I've looked at other cities and what they're doing. You know, Ann Arbor's doing cool stuff with sustainable heating utility that they're proposing, and maybe we'll get there too. But we need to put some time and people on this about how we can work together, use all these assets, protect, you know, the different jobs and things and make more of these jobs local. And if we can do it with local jobs and local people, that's even better. There's a lot to figure out. But we're just at the beginning of the journey. And right now we've got a couple cool opportunities to explore. So we're going to pursue those and see what we can do. What is the timeline for this project? Sure. With the wastewater heat recovery, we have one year to design it, which is a kind of a hurry up and design it, right? Like we're working <laughs> on it right now. But the timing is really important. I'm glad you asked that because in 2026, we'll be starting a construction project right along the big corridor which connects the wastewater treatment plant to Lincoln Park and the downtown. So there's a 1.7 mile stretch of West Superior Street where we have secured funding through the Rebuilding America's Infrastructure with Sustainability and Equity Raise Grant. So as we take apart that street, I mean, that's the time to put new infrastructure in, put those hot water pipes in the ground to use this recovered waste heat. So there's a lot of pieces moving right now, but we have a year to design. And then when construction breaks ground, we'd need to know what size pipes are they? What, where do they go? You know, where are they placed in this right of way? So it's definitely crunch time. Got it. So this is both a design and implementation project grant. Is that right? No, it's only for design and analysis. But the nice part is at the end of the year of analysis, the Department of Energy is going to down select one or two projects for some funding. And even if we're not selected for that, there's certainly other funding sources out there right now that we could look into if the design is showing this is feasible and affordable and it's going to stabilize energy costs in the neighborhood. That's a really good reason to do it. So we'll be seeking implementation dollars for this project. Interesting. When, let's say, fast forward that this goes forward and is put in, the heating there then is not subject to price swings in fossil fuel markets anymore. Right. Yep. And I think stable energy prices is something that's reflected in the 27 letters of support that we had to apply for the grant. I guess as long as we keep providing waste, right, then that's probably (laughs) good. Yeah, that probably won't change, right? Communities need wastewater plants for sure. If anybody is listening from the Department of Energy, if you can do this in Duluth, you can do it anywhere. So give them the money. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah. Part of the grant period will be also to look at the buildings themselves, what modifications are needed in buildings to accept this type of heat and what's possible, how many switches of buildings are feasible. There's a lot of upgrades needed in buildings to do the work, but there's also incentives to make commercial buildings more energy efficient. So 
how can we stack and weave all these different resources together to rethink how we're heating our buildings is part of the game. Cool. Well, you've talked about Duluth being a cold, wet place <laughs> for people to live. Yes. <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, the New York Times is dubbing it a climate-proof city. And I don't know if you've seen this terrible show on Apple TV that's about climate change in the not-so-distant future. But at one point, there's a older woman in Miami. Miami's flooding and her son's like, you know, you need to go to one of the relos. Are you going to go to Milwaukee or Duluth? And so it's like popping up as potential maybe refugee city in the wake of climate disaster, I suppose. (laughs) What do you all make of that reputation? What does it mean for your work? I think we're not out there trying to advertise ourselves as let's grow and be a climate refuge city. We're certainly not trying to advertise that. But I think we are safe from the worst of what climate change can bring. So it's not a bad choice to live here, but we're not without our challenges from climate change. We will have to adapt to different levels of storms, different intensities of rainfall and snowstorms, and even the swings in temperature, too. I've been told like polar vortexes could become stronger or even deeper with climate change as things change. So we do have to deal with weirder weather and wetter weather. So those things are challenges for Duluth. So I don't think we're necessarily safe from climate change. But in terms of people moving here to try to find a place to live and work and make their home. That's exciting to me to think about more people coming to Duluth and enjoying what we have. We know we have challenges with housing. I think Brett could probably talk about that for days uh, because he used to work in housing in Duluth and I stole him from our housing team. Sorry, housing team, but he's now working on solar and storage planning. But we're always thinking about the people who live here now and the challenges of living in Duluth right now. And if we can upgrade our infrastructure and work on these challenges of our buildings to make people who already live here make their lives easier, better, more energy efficient. We'll keep doing that work and it will help if more people come. Yeah, I think that working toward resilience for folks who live there now and future populations is incredibly important. And Brett, I know that's a big part of your role. Can you tell us some of the things that you're working toward in terms of resilience? Yeah, we're focused right now with resiliency in terms of solar and storage and utilizing that in our community. Mindy just touched on housing, whereas we've already mentioned we have an old housing stock and we have a tight housing market. And so energy burdens is something, especially in certain LMI communities, can bring the cost of housing down. So not only are we looking at it in terms of how the city can utilize solar and storage to be more resilient in times of emergencies or in the face of climate change, but also how can we work with community partners for residents and businesses and nonprofits in their community to access that and be more resilient themselves. The more resilient we are individually, the more resilient we are as a community. And so that's kind of the focus of where we are shifting and our focus is on solar and storage. Cool. And you got a pretty big grant under the RACER, which is the Renewables Advancing Community Energy Resilience Award. Can you tell us about that award? Yeah, it's pretty funny. It took me the longest time to get what that acronym was, and I kept messing it up when I first started. Um, oh, I definitely one. just cheated. I read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we, we were awarded close to a million dollars from the DOE to study this. I think one of the really cool and interesting things is we were the only single municipality to get awarded. It's great. We're working, and we've been in contact with other research labs and other collaborations between counties and cities that are working on the grant and a different focus of the RACER grant, but we're one of the only ones that were awarded that. So we're really excited and we're looking to build a cold climate toolkit. So one of the things that we're 
looking to have at the end or we will produce at the end of this is kind of a pathway for other municipalities to hopefully not follow in our footsteps per se, but to build their own plan, to build their own solar resilience. So we're doing that by looking at our city assets and where our infrastructure costs are and where our you know, most important assets are. But at the same time, we're working with Equilibrium 3, a nonprofit partner, and they're doing a very community-based bottom-up approach where they're doing focus groups in each communities and each neighborhoods to identify each neighborhood is different and has different needs in the time of a power outage or something. So how can we use our city assets to identify and meet those needs? So our assets and our resilience guidance will be guided by the community voice. And that's kind of how we're meshing our project. And you said, you know, you're getting nearly a million dollars and this is primarily for a study. Like, is that a lot of engineering costs or what is the funding going to be? Yeah. So it's covering a wide range of the project from partners. We have a couple contracts or we'll have a couple contracts with some professors out of the University of Minnesota to help us with the economic side and the community and social aspect side. Um, we just yesterday closed on our RFQ for a, a third party vendor. So we're going to be working closely with an internal team and some local partners to identify. Right now, we have 34 identified assets in the community. How do we narrow that down to a manageable 8 to 10 asset? So we've created a siting rubric for resilient power that we're going to use to run the sites through and then identify which ones would be best for the community and best for us and most feasible to implement solar. So it covers costs of doing site evaluations, if it's a building, civil engineering evaluations, if it's a site, soil borings, anything like that. Any type of site evaluation is also covered. So really, this grant covers and gets us to a point of, kind of like the geothermal, a point of implementation. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing it funds is Brett. (laughs) Because we couldn't lead this work. We couldn't do this work. We couldn't work with community, listen to community voice. We We couldn't do it without a person. And so the most important part was having Brett for two years to, you know, be around, lead this project and to take the reins. So thank you, Brett. I'm actually really glad <laughs> you thank raised you, that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just saw an article that was talking about I think New York, California, and maybe one other state have received like 52% of FEMA dollars. It states... It's cities that have the resources and have the staffing to be able to apply for funding where other communities are kind of getting left behind because they maybe don't have the resources to apply. And maybe if they have the resources to apply, they don't have the resources to implement. And so you don't have the capacity to even know what's the right thing to do. Right. Like racer is about, yeah, we could flail around and be like, Oh, there's 30% off solar. Let's just put it out there. But racer is about how do communities have conversations internally within Mm -hmm. the city, but also with community to say, where are the best places for these? Where's the most effective use of these? What should these solar, large-scale solar arrays reflect our values? Brett gets to really hone in on and find the sweet spots so mm-hmm. that we don't just flail and just, let's put a 40 kilowatt array over here and a 60 over here. Let's find the best places. We need to go at this problem, not with a sledgehammer, but with a scalpel, because these resources are important and we want to do them the right way. I often say this, and a lot of cities probably would say this, but We don't have enough resources to take a lot of risks. Mm -hmm. Any mistake is a really big mistake for our city. Budgets are tight. We don't have room for error. So RACER and these other grants help us really use a scalpel to figure out what is the right solution and get to that solution. So I think when there's a lot at stake and you don't have a lot of room for error, grants like this that provide capacity are just super, super important for cities. 
Department of Energy is listening. Like, this is amazing work. We couldn't do it without you. So thank you for your partnership. Yeah, I think that's a really crucial point. And I think it's something probably a lot of smaller and mid-sized cities are dealing with is, you know, the resources to go after, the resources to implement, and then the resources to kind of sustain after that. So. And the nice thing about Brett's project with Racer is like he is actually building a toolkit for other cities. Yep. So as we're doing the work, as we're figuring out what's the best way to get to the best solar investments for your community, he's also making a toolkit to help other communities follow along and do that in there. So hopefully we're making it easier for others. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And when you have that toolkit, we'll be happy to share it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So you spoke earlier, Mindy, about the climate action work plan, the five-year plan. And more often than not, we hear about folks doing climate action plans that are 20 years, 30 years in length. So what has been your experience with that work plan? How far are you in that five-year plan? And what comes next after it? Yeah, I think we're in, I would say, year two of implementation. And I would say probably a lot of the near-term, fast-acting things, we're making a lot of progress. And the nice part about it was when you put together short-term actions and you start to align resources and you have agreement, it makes the work easier. The work isn't the hard part. The change is hard, but the work to get there isn't the hard part. It's the getting the, that agreement and alignment, I think, is the hard part. So to me, having the work plan and having folks cite the work plan when you hear about a new parking ordinance that's going to be on city council next week. And to hear that say, well, this, you know, supports our climate action work plan that you as the city council said you wanted us to work on. So I think as we see departments align with it, cite the work plan and, and align their work with the work plan, it's just, it's been really inspiring. But I would say we're making really great progress. We're only two years in, but I also feel like, okay, we're making enough progress that we need to start about what's the next five-year plan? What are the next things we can scaffold and build upon from what where we're already at? And what do we need to get there? And so that's exciting. I think we're not even halfway there. Like Bon Jovi says, you know, well, we're halfway there. We're not halfway there, but I'm already thinking about what's the next five-year plan because we're ticking off a lot of the boxes. I think we had listed some sort of shovel-ready projects and there was like five really specific shovel-ready projects. And we've made really good progress on four out of those five. And we're just getting started on the fifth. And I'm like, we're only in year two. But I think it's a rallying cry across the city because a lot of what's in our work plan is the stuff that folks wanted to do. We need to renew our public buildings. We need to renew our fleet. We need better equipment to renew snow and reduce salt use. Like these are all things that everyone agrees on. Yeah. So I would say we're making really good progress. We're not quite halfway through it, but I'm already thinking about the next five years. <laughs> how do we scaffold and build from where we're at? I think the title of this episode will be Duluth Living on a Prayer. Oh, <laughs> See, you beat me to it. I was going to say, listeners, there's the first Bon Jovi reference in our uh, in all of our episodes. <laughs> People think I'm a really serious lady, and then they find out I'm a fan of 80s hair bands, and then just, they lose all respect for me. So Def Leppard forever. Hey, Ella, so in your work in outreach, what are you hearing? What are your challenges? What are the exciting things you're hearing? I think there's a lot of excitement and people do really care. I think the one thing is just the lack of knowledge to understand the incentives, I think, can be a little difficult with all the different layers, um, federal, state, all the different funding mechanisms that people want to take advantage of but they're kind of getting lost 
in the difficult language and just all the different resources that are out there. And so that's why I've been trying to focus on more education with those incentives and taking people through the language step by step and hopefully pushing the needle a little bit to maybe buying that heat pump or getting um, energy audit, just helping people move to the next step. Fantastic. Well, this has been great. The last question we'll ask each of you to think about is what advice would you have for other cities? Mine is listen, listen to your city's needs, listen to the department heads around your city. What are they struggling with? What are their priorities? And then think about, okay, how do we infuse climate and sustainability into those decisions and how to solve those things? And I think if you focus on what the needs are of your local community and then wrap sustainability and climate around what those needs are, you're going to be successful. Um, So it's a lot of listening to what the needs are around your city. Brett, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think that's right on. A lot of our work has been formed by the citizens and their input, and it's been leading to that. I also think it's important to remember to be intentional. Duluth, in the past couple of years, we've been intentional to make this a priority and make this a step. And Mindy's done a great job of bringing it to all departments to have that collaboration. So intentional collaboration internally and with your community, I think is the most important thing that's going to push this work forward. Great. Ella, your thoughts, advice. Don't be discouraged, even if you have a small team. It's just us, but we're working really hard and we're making a lot of progress. So I'm happy for us. Fantastic. Hey, thank you all so much. This has been fantastic. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Abby and Larry. All right, Larry, what'd you think? Oh, it was great. And my first takeaway is going to be the climate action work plan, which Mm. um, I have a question for you, Abby, on this. It sounds like a brilliant concept. It sounds like a brilliant (laughs) idea. I'm trying to remember. Someone came up with this idea in Minnesota. Do you remember who that was? Mm, I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was me. <laughs> no, uh, I do. I, I don't know. I'm sure there are other similar examples out there. And now the EPA has the Priority Climate Action Plan, PCAP. But yeah, we a few years ago came up with the idea that not everybody needs a full blown climate action plan that looks out several decades and includes every imaginable action for climate change because. It can be really overwhelming. Cities already have comprehensive plans that are really good places for including long-term strategies, especially through a climate lens. And then it felt like something more doable if it's, what do we want to do in the next, say, five years as priority things? Just get the ball rolling and check some things off the list while working toward this long-term goal. Yeah, I love it. I remember when you first told me about it, which, by the way, was after you had done the St. Louis Park Climate Action Plan, which is one of those big looking out plans. But I remember, I think the first one was Red Wing, if I remember Mm -hmm. correctly. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh, that makes total sense. You know, you don't have to spend as much time creating it, get moving. And we need to get moving. Actions that happen sooner rather than later are more valuable because the emission reductions build up over time. So I thought it was really interesting to be able now to hear how it was going in Duluth. Yeah. And, you know, I have to give Mindy a ton of credit. This climate action work plan is actually almost entirely focused on city operations. And there's some that's focused on community wide, but it was really about how do we get our own house in order? How do we work better across departments and work on this and 
she's really taken the helm on that. And I think she's done just a tremendous job. And she mentions in here that we have a wish list. It's like, what are these, you know, if you got whatever, a blank check from the federal government, what would you want to do with it? And so we had a handful of things that are listed in there. And I think a number of them are getting funded now, which is amazing. And so it's really cool. That's so cool. That reminds me also of like St. Cloud putting their list of mm-hmm. things they want to do. Or no, Morris, the hundred things they were going to do and now 50 are done. So it's good to do that dreaming big thing. For sure. And then you never know. When we did this, we had no idea about IRA funding or IIJA funding that was coming and it did and is making all of these things more possible. Yeah. Another takeaway I wrote down was wastewater. Mm-hmm. How really thinking about it as a resource, the heat that comes off it and what you can do with it just makes so much sense and is so applicable in many places. And it's really you know, building on mentioned St. Cloud. Love to see more and more folks really think about using this as a resource. Yeah, I think this will be a cool study and I look forward to seeing what comes out of that because I think the folks that they're working with, I think Evergreen, uh, (laughs) Evergreen Energy, they've been looking into this and have been looking for these kinds of thermal solutions and have some other projects in mind. And it would be great to see kind of proof of concept and be able to utilize more waste heat because there's a ton of waste heat out there that could be captured. Right. And otherwise it just gets vented, right? And just isn't used. Yeah. And in Duluth, it is a very much as a cold climate city, joking a little bit about (laughs) the description of it being cold and wet, but it's got winter 13 out of 12 months of the year. (laughs) Uh, No, it doesn't. It's a very, very lovely city, but it has a harsh winter climate. And if you can successfully implement these creative strategies that are not natural gas, truly, you should be able to do this anywhere. And, you know, it's a lot of bedrock in Duluth. So they have some real challenges above ground and below ground. And if they can figure that out, yeah, I think that that's something that can be replicated. Super cool. It is. And just to reiterate that point that they have a small staff and they're doing a ton of things and dreaming big and getting things done and is huge. And I hope that for those who fund these kind of projects, think about that capacity piece too and allowing entities to be able to hire to implement these things. Yeah. I was also really cool to have Ella join in and talk about her work as AmeriCorps and then how she does outreach to the community. I thought that was great. I know. Yeah. And there has been like an announcement of a National Climate Corps program. And so hopefully that eventually gets some legs and we can see more folks distributed throughout the country. Absolutely. We hope you enjoyed this episode of City Climate Corner. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe and give us a review. If you're able, become a monthly supporter through Patreon. As always, you can find more information on this topic and resources from each episode's guests on our webpage, cityclimatecorner.com. If you have an idea for the show, send us an email at cityclimatecorner at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. City Climate Corner is produced by Abby Finnis and me, Larry Kraft. Edited by our content coordinator, Isaiah Eagles. Music by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.